Hello, and welcome to the Superhero by Design podcast, a show where we interview real life superheroes. My name is Ace, and I'll be your host. Today, we have a doctor in the building. I guess you can say he's making a house call. But seriously, this man is one of the most knowledgeable doctors I have ever met. And he is on the forefront of changing the way we view and practice modern medicine here in the Western world. Please turn your heads and cough for Dr. <laughs> Carlos Rivas. Yeah. Dr. Carlos, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Matt. Or as I should say, Ace Haggerty. You're so sweet, man. That's just a nice intro. Um, because I know you, I know you're always honest and sincere. So I know you meant every word of what you just said. Um, and yeah. that's so sweet of you. Thank you so much. Well, I appreciate that. I completely butchered the end of it, but no, <laughs> I was no, no, to hold it together. Said, I... I know you mean them. And that's like, <laughs> you know, especially for, I admire you a lot. Um, everything that you're doing, this podcast, of course, your book, um, and just what you're doing to develop yourself. So, so to hear a man that I admire, praise me like that and give me those titles. Thank you so much. It means a lot. Well, that's, it's nothing but the truth, man. So I appreciate you saying that. So for those of you who are listening, you can find out more about Dr. Los on his Instagram at Carlos Rivas MD or check out his website, carlosrivasmd.com to schedule a consultation. Now, I know you're a medical doctor and all, but I've got a gutsy question to start off with. You ready for no, this? For the promotion that you just put in, just because sometimes people misspell my last name. So for my Instagram and website that you just mentioned, it's Carlos, C-A-R-L-O-S, Rivas, R-I-V-A-S, M as in Mary, D as in dog, dot com. There you go. There you go. Carlos Rivas, Rivas with an R. All right, man. I gotta, I gotta jump Yo. in here. You're, you're killing, killing the time. Yo. So, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. Thank you. It's so, I'm so excited to be on the show with you. I've been looking forward to it for a long time. Well, I appreciate you saying that. So, Carlos and I, just for you listeners, we know each other for quite a while. It's been over 25 years or so. We went to high school together. We were on the swim team together. We were roommates together when I was in grad school and you were uh, in undergrad before becoming a medical doctor and pursuing that that career. Um, so we know each other pretty intimately. We've been to lots of music shows together and we might get into the whole music thing at some oh. point. But Carlos and I know each other very well and I am very excited to have him here on the show, not because he's just a medical doctor and we're going to talk about typical medical things, but as we've grown in our careers, we've stayed in contact together. And a lot more recently, we have uh, just been working on our businesses, working on our passions and our missions. And this is exactly why I wanted to get you on the show, Dr. Los, because what he brings to the medical community is new, it's different, and it completely turns Western medicine upside down on its head. And we will get into this. However, I would like to go over kind of your journey on how you got to where you are today. So if you don't mind jumping in, tell us a little bit of your journey through medicine. Yeah. And I'm definitely going to mention the time that we lived and studied together as part of that story. <clears throat> the first time that I remember being really interested in medicine was actually right around the time that I met you. Uh, 
you know, end of the freshman year in high school. Uh, we went to Moreau Catholic High School in Hayward, California on Mission Boulevard. Great times. Um, and at, around that time, a little bit before and then during that time, both of my grandfathers died of um, advanced cancer of different types. Um, my dad on my dad's side passed a little bit sooner than my dad on my mom's side, but both within, I think, like two years of each other. And right at the end of junior high, right at the beginning of high school. And I remember being kind of like kept um, distant from what was going on with them medically, uh, but still seeing how my family was dealing with their cases. And just seeing that despite all the treatment, all the doctor's visits, um, all the care and concern that my family was bringing to both of these men that I loved and admired, um, they just got sicker and sicker. And I was like, what's happening? Like they're receiving treatment, medical treatment. And it's like, this is cancer. So they're receiving advanced medical treatment for their advanced disease. And they just look worse every day. Both of them ended up bedbound. Both of them eventually like on oxygen, some version of hospice or like end of life care. And I was like, what's going on? Like it's 1990, whatever. Like doesn't medicine work? So I remember like this frustration of like these men that I love are getting sicker despite medical treatment. We can do better. I already had some like faith in science for whatever reason, probably because my dad was an engineer. Um, so I was like, no, we can do better. We can solve these problems. So I think that's where my heart started leaning towards medical school. And I know that like that's documented because in my, um, what do they call it? Your personal letter or whatever, the letter that you attach to your application for college. Um, you know, we applied to a similar set of schools, right? Like all the UCs, et cetera, et cetera. And so you have to write personal letters or whatever, uh, personal essays. <clears throat> and I know there that I was already talking about my aspirations to go into medicine or at least like the technical aspect of the healthcare field, mostly medicine. Um, and so I went into bioengineering at UC Berkeley, um, was very fortunate to get into that program, very competitive, um, you know, very high level. So it forced me to you know, uh, study and think at a high caliber, which I was capable of, but during those times, I was more interested in extracurricular activities, let's say that. Um, so my grades were not stellar, but I made great friends with really intelligent people um, and became better and better friends with yourself, your brother, um, you know, our other friend from high school, Grant. I was always really proud of all our circle of friends, Mickey, because we all stayed so professional in the engineering or other technical fields. And I was like, man, me and my friends were all so cool. Like we're pursuing these cool degrees. Um, so even if you didn't know it at the time, like you're, you guys studying what you were studying and doing well and pursuing those professional tasks um, motivated me to stay on track and not fall off despite my grades not being great in undergrad. And then actually, yeah. my grades not being great in undergrad was one of the motivations for me to be aggressive about medical school. Because I was like, no, I'm smart. I got through high school. I barely studied and I did really well in high school. So, like, I've got something smart in here. I just need to apply myself. I didn't do that in college. I'm going to do it in med school. So, when you and me were living together in Berkeley um, was when I was applying to basically these, like, side door programs into med school. They call them post back um, and so you pursuing your master's was, 
another inspiration that maybe I didn't talk to you about at the time, but that really motivated me to like, like, look, my best friend, Matt, we've known each other since we started studying and started caring about college and, that, and academics and that sort of thing. He's kicking ass. He's getting a master's at UC Berkeley in civil engineering. I can get into med school. If he can do it, I can do it. Like we come from the same stock. Basically, we grew up a few blocks from each other. I grew up eating your mom's um, ranch dressing, you know, like we got the same biochemistry going on up here. We can do this. Um, So I was aggressive about applying to those postdoc programs, despite my undergrad grades not being good because I knew I had it in me. And actually, even more than that, like I kind of had a grudge, like I'm going to prove it to everybody Um, because at the time, my parents were not that enthusiastic. Especially my mom was like, Carlos, you had a hard time with your grades in undergrad. Are you sure you want to put yourself through med school? It's really rigorous. Um, so I was like, no, I'm going to prove it to everybody. Everybody who didn't believe in me, I can do this. Also, some of this like first generation immigrant, like we're going to make this. We're going to prove it. Um, we're not going to fall to the stigma of like, oh, immigrant Hispanics, like you can work at the burrito shop or whatever. You know, like, no, we're going to we're going to make it happen. Um, so, yeah, I think that's, that's so important what you're talking about. Essentially, I want to hit on two quick things. The people you were around, you're, my brother was the same way. School wasn't the most important to him, but being around people who took it very seriously, like myself and Mickey and really seeing, catching all of that day in and day out. We lived together. You saw the struggles I went through, but how I kept pushing myself and and persevering. I think that's so important. And also using the, I wouldn't call it negativity, but people out of love telling you, hey, like it might be better if you pursue something else that's not as difficult. And it's like, no, like I'm not lazy. I know how to do this. School for you just came naturally pretty easy. But like you said, you were more interested in other things. I know we skateboarded a lot. That was a lot of fun. We would go to uh, concerts quite a bit. And so I think it's important to realize that you had this inner fire in you. It just took time to have it be exposed and come out. That, and- but if I'm going to be honest about like my own like self-understanding, um, one, I think I got spoiled by being clever you know like i figured out i was i found out i was really good at intuitively figuring out problems so if you're really good at problem solving you can figure things out on the fly and so i would do that with tests in high school because the high school tests just weren't that hard so if you're like really focused and like good at problem solving on the fly you can almost like okay i'm sure this one is right and it's multiple choice so that means a c and d have to be false if those are false, then on this other question, then they this one must, you know what I mean? Like you start connecting the dots as you're going if you're just good at problem solving. I wonder why I got good at problem solving. I don't know. Maybe I just inherited that from my dad. Um, but then like, so I got spoiled. And I'm like, okay, I have a good problem solving brain. Um, but I was lazy about memorizing. And that's not something you can get away with in college and definitely can't get away with it in med school. Um, so that was part of it. And then another part of it, I think was like, I was just being rebellious, you know, like we both came from kind of restrictive households. Right. And you guys talked about a little bit of that with your brother on that episode. Um, you know, just like moms that were like kind of hovering and too much in your business and telling you what to do all the time. So I think part of 
my college experience was rebelling against that. Like, no, I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to party. I'm going to just do whatever. Um, And so the funny thing was, I was actually really studious in college about everything except what I was supposed to be studying in school. Like, I got super into Buddhist philosophy. Um, I read like almost every page on Wikipedia that was back in its infancy. Um, when there was only maybe like a couple thousand, I remember spending so much time reading Wikipedia articles about stuff that I didn't know about. And then that really served me later because I became very well read. Oh, I read all these classic books that we were supposed to read in high school, but never read like Catcher in the Rye. Um, what was one of the other ones? Um, Lord of the Flies, things like that. Like all these books that, our classic American literature that we did. Anyway, so I was really studious, but not about what we were supposed to be studying because it was just a way to rebel. But I had to grow, I had to grow up if I wanted to be a doctor and I did really want to be a doctor. So I got my shoes. Yeah. Well, one, one quick story I want to bring in when we were living together uh, for that year in that really rundown apartment, nasty apartment, I remember you had joined, I think, the triathlon team for a very short stint, and you hurt your yeah. back very early in your training. So cool, and you remember that. Mm-hmm. From what I remember, you couldn't. I remember you would lay down with your feet up, yeah. and you'd have like a computer screen in front of you, and that's how you studied. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? Because obviously, there's a medical side to it. There's what you were talking about becoming more studious. How, how did that play out? You know, it's really cool that you bring that up because that actually was a pivotal moment in my trajectory for med school. But I don't know how you would have known that. You must have just like intuitively or maybe you saw things during that time that I didn't know you were aware of. Um, so, yeah, that was um, during the triathlon team training. I didn't know how to run and I have very flat feet and um, bow legs. So probably my anatomy plus uh, poor technique because um, it was like a club triathlon team. It wasn't like um, a serious competitive triathlon team. So the coaches were like, yeah, whatever. There's hundreds of kids here. Just let them go. And so, but I was trying to get in shape and, um, running was always my weak leg in, if you think about running, cycling and swimming and triathlon, I was very strong in swimming. That was my main thing in high school. And I always liked, um, skating and cycling to get around because I didn't have a car in college. So I was pretty good at the cycling leg, but I hated running. Um, so I was trying to push myself in that leg to catch up with everybody. And I hurt myself, just bad technique. I found out later that the injury was a herniated disc. Um, if I'm remembering correctly, I think it was L4, L5 or L5S1, the disc between the two vertebrae. Um, and it herniated it, like pushed out and started pressing on a nerve, gave me sciatic pain down the right side. Um, and it herniated Pretty badly, I got um, foot drop. That's like when the ankle is weak and can't um, keep the toes up even when you're supposed to, so your foot starts dragging. So I had foot drop and really bad pain uh, in the low back and down the right leg, uh, you know, around the buttocks and across the knee. Classic um, herniated disc sciatica episode. Um, and it laid me out. Uh, eventually, I got more advanced treatments like cortisone shots, physical therapy, and and I got a little bit better. Um, but while I was laid up, um, especially at first, it was so bad. And my primary care doctor was kind of waving it off. He was like, yeah, whenever you have some back pain, it'll be fine. Just take some ibuprofen, whatever. Um, 
And something in me was like, no, this is more severe and more complex than my primary care doctor is telling me. So I actually started getting like really into the medical science there. I guess I had enough of a engineering and basic science background that I felt like I could start to understand the medical literature. So I started reading about low back pain, the causes of it, um, when you need to do imaging, when you need more advanced treatment, when do you need to do an x-ray, when do you need to do an MRI, um, you know, what kind of therapies are an option, or even just the words, like what are the names of these diagnoses? Um, so I remember like being on that little crappy couch that we had, ugh, um, on my back, knees up, because it's the only position where I'd get a little bit of relief, um, on my laptop, trying to figure out what I had wrong with me and what I should tell my doctor so that he could send me to the right place. And I was like, oh, okay, I figured this out. I have sciatica due to L4, L5, or L5, S1 herniated disc pushing out on the uh, spinal nerve root on the right side. I need an MRI and a referral to somebody who can give specific treatment for that because I need to make sure that I get treated before it gets worse because you don't want surgery for that if you can avoid it at all costs because the surgery outcomes are poor. All the stuff I figured out on PubMed, you know, which is like the big um, medical science um, National Library of Medicine uh, hub. And oh, and you you didn't go to WebMD at that time and learn you had cancer. <laughs> I don't remember if WebMD was out yet, but <laughs> thankfully, no, I knew to go to like the real science. Um, okay. And okay. then at the same time, I was in two classes that were really important. Actually, not so much the class, but the professors were really important for my medical journey. Um, one was a public health course, was my first course in public health. The second was a biomaterials science course, like hardcore engineering material science, but with a, a bioengineering um, take on it. And um, I actually really loved those classes a lot because they really inspired me. I was like, oh, I'm really into this stuff. I just wasn't that motivated about freshman and sophomore year material because it was so distant from what um, it was going to be applicable clinically. But I was starting to get into material where I was learning about physicians from the past um, and scientists in the past that were creating um, frameworks, paradigms of understanding that are still applicable in medical science today. So I got really motivated about those classes. And actually, for the first time, I was like disappointed that I couldn't go to class and, and study these things. Um, and because of that, I kept studying, even though I was totally laid out, excruciating pain, on anti-inflammatories, on narcotics, getting cortisone shots, doing PT. I kept studying. I missed midterms in both of those classes. But as soon as I was able to walk, I went back to both of those professors and said, hey, um, I was out for medical reasons. Here's my medical letter. Um, what do I need to do to catch back up? They both gave me catch-up plans. I impressed both of them, um, which uh, was great because then I asked both of them for um, letters of recommendation to medical school. And they were both really supportive. And one of them was an MD and another one was a biomaterial science who he would teach in the MD PhD program. And so he was already mentoring and professoring medical students. And both were very encouraging. They're like, yeah, Carlos, you're smart. We're impressed with what you did to catch back up despite being out for so long. Here's your letters. So those two professors were pivotal in me actually getting into medical school, especially because my TPA was not. Great. So that whole Great. experience was like, yeah, Carlos, you can do this. Your professors at Berkeley believe in you despite your GPA. And you were coaching your MD doctor on how to get diagnosed and treated properly 
despite just being some like low grade undergrad in bioengineering. Right. Thanks That's for bringing incredible. up that story, dude. That was actually, I wouldn't have thought of that. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I still remember those days for sure. Cause you were on your back literally for months and months and months. Yeah, and it, it felt like that, but maybe it was like uh, three to four weeks. Katrina was happening at the same time, which was crazy. So I was like glued to CNN while I was on that couch going like, oh my God, New Orleans is going just like, um, you know, not it, like hell on earth except water instead of fire. It's crazy watch, watching right, that. Right. I'll just always remember that, but that's less relevant to the story. There you go. So you get through, you go to medical school, obviously, get through medical school and you go through what is it called after medical medical school rotations or what, what's that called? Yeah, I'll catch you up on that. So I went in through the post lab program. I got to, into Georgetown University's um, uh, their post lab program that I got into. They had a couple, but I got one into that was called GEMS. Um, it was stood for Georgetown Experimental Medical Studies Program, G E M S, um, and it was a post lab program designed to help. Um, underserved uh, background students, so I check the box and I'm Hispanic, um, to help students of that type who had academic potential just weren't manifesting it for whatever reason. It was the specific intention of that program. Like we wanna get more diverse, um, underserved, you know, ethnically underrepresented or whatever students in um, and we can we can find the ones that are going to be able to cut it in med school just for whatever reason their transcript doesn't look like it. And I fit that profile. Actually, most of them were because their MCAT scores were not top notch, even though their GPAs were good. Um, probably because they were the opposite of me, good at memorizing, but not as good at test taking. I was the reverse. My MCAT score was pretty good, especially even compared it to how bad my GPA was. So, but I still feel the profile like, okay, he's good at test taking. He just didn't apply himself in his materials. Um, so let's take a chance on him. Um, so I got into that program, was really pivotal to my studies because I had a great uh, teacher there, um, uh, Dean David Taylor. He was a great mentor and still a mentor of mine. I reach out to him every once in a while. And he taught me to have a never ending enthusiasm and uh, belief in myself. Like he actually even kind of inflated my ego a little bit too much. Like sometimes when I come into the room, probably because I'm late. And then something that I only learned recently is that when you're habitually late, it can come off as arrogance. And so I think he was actually making fun of my arrogance, but at the same time giving me praise because he knew my potential. So he would call me, oh, great, Carlos. And he would say it like that. Just like he had this really loud, booming voice and he would just like fill the classroom with that and of course i'd be super embarrassed um but he taught me to believe in myself no matter what and he taught me many other things so i got through that program i did really well i was like all my like i'm going to prove it to them energy was in on that program i was probably the top student or at least in the top two of that program so that impressed them enough to admit me into georgetown medical school um i was there for four years that same energy of like i'm going to prove it i can do this like Undergrad is not a reflection of my abilities. Um, I kept going with that. So I got into the, I'm not trying to brag here, um, but just stating the facts that this was an important part of my story. Um, I got into the honor society at our med school, Alpha Omega Alpha. Um, and one of my, uh, 
pride was always that I did it without performance enhancing substances. Besides, I guess the caffeine is performance enhancing, but it's pretty generic. But a lot of the other students were using other substances. I won't name any names. Um, oh, really? What, what, what kind of substances were, were you know, students like using? I'm, I'm stimulants that this. might otherwise be prescribed for um, deficits in attention or concentration, you know? Like yeah. Adderall? Things like that. Things like that. Everybody okay. else, everybody else on, <laughs> at my caliber of scores on testing was using stuff like that. Whether they had a gotcha. legitimate diagnosis that would uh, legitimize the, pres- the prescription or not. Um, Pretty much everybody at that level was using substances much more advanced than caffeine. And I didn't. I was like, nope, I'm going to do this raw. I'm going to do this natural. We got this. And I did. I was like up there in the top tier, um, often getting the top score on individual exams. Um, So by the end of that, I basically had my choice in what um, residency I wanted to do. That was the word that you were looking for. Residency. Yeah. There you go. So yep. um, the whole time I thought I was going to do family medicine because my aspiration was I want to take care of anybody who comes to me looking for help because that's what I'm in it for. I want to help people. I want to help people like my grandfathers who like just didn't get the care that they needed, um, regardless of their ability to pay, regardless of their background. Like I just want to help everybody. Um, so I wanted to be very much a generalist, the generalist, generalist. So in Conventional medicine, that's family medicine. For the most general, they take care of kids, they take care of adults, they do primary care, they do procedures, they can do some hospital medicine, um, they can do some surgery like OB-GYN or other small surgical procedures. They learn the basics of everything. Um, so that's what I thought I was going to do. But then um, a couple of things I realized uh, during medical school and then specifically during my interview cycle for residency one was that I was too um, sentimental and so couldn't have professional distance with certain kinds of patients, especially really sick kids. Um, like my pediatrics rotation, I remember just like getting emotional and even tearful with some of the kids in the hospital who were really sick. One, I remember, I'll never forget one girl. Um, her name was Camila, which, as you know, is one of my sister's names. And so that pro- and she was Latina, the girl. Um, and her family. And so that probably kind of tugged on my heartstrings, right? Just all of this familiarity. She was really sick. Um, and her parents were rarely there. Probably the medical staff was telling them, you know, there's nothing you can do right now. Just wait, we'll call you. Um, but that just made me feel for her so much. This little girl who was suffering, her parents couldn't even be there. Um, and so I found myself so emotional that I was having a hard time paying attention to what needed to be done on a technical level for her case and especially for a hospitalized patient, like you have to be on top of the technicals because you're there to save their life. You can't just be tied up in your emotions. So I realized, okay, pediatrics, um, probably not good for me that I have a hard time maintaining the professional distance required. Um, and then I also realized that I'm a nerd. Like I like getting really nerdy about the nitty gritty biochemistry, um, all the little details, um, and then applying that basic science into the clinical realm. I don't want to let go of that. And so I found that internal medicine doctors, for whatever reason, um, maybe just because of the background of how internal medicine developed as a field, it really started as a lab medicine. That's why it's called internal. It means internal to the laboratory, that they're in the laboratory as opposed to 
outside, like in the outpatient, you know, out in the environment world. They're like really in there. Um, so internal medicine, people, the people in internal medicine were more like me, really nerdy about the technicals, never shying away from equations and other more engineering-esque aspects of medicine. Um, I found that out on my rotations. So, excuse me, on my interview cycle. So I applied for an internal medicine residency, just one internal medicine residency program, actually. Um, the other thing that I was feeling was homesickness. I was really homesick for the Bay Area, which is where we come from, uh, you and me and your brother. <coughs> um, Bay Area, California, San Francisco Bay Area. Because um, I had been in Washington, D.C. for going on five years now, and I hated the cold weather winters, and the summers were too hot, and it's just, I missed home. So I was like, I want to do internal medicine back home. Um, and so I found the coolest internal medicine residency program I could find um, at Highland Hospital, which is the county hospital in Alameda County uh, in the city of Oakland. And besides it being close to home, the reason why I picked it was another one of my aspirations besides I want to take all comers is I want to be able to handle the sickest of the sick, the most complicated of the most complicated. You know, like this person is trying to die in every way they possibly can and that the resources are absent. Like we just we got to figure this out with a shoelace because we don't have anything else. And the reason I wanted that was one, you know, I wanted to help the underserved. I felt like my family came back, came from an underserved background. Um, I want to give back to the community. Um, and so I wanted to work with people that just were coming from uh, inadequate means. But also I was like, if I can handle the sickest of the sick with the least resources available, then for the rest of my career, I can handle anything that comes. And that was actually, it worked out that way. I came out of uh, internal medicine residency um, extremely confident. Anybody comes to me with any disease, I got you. You're in good hands. We're going to figure this out. That's incredible. And I, I appreciate you saying that, man. And we are going to hop into some pretty crazy stories, I'm sure, here in a minute. I just want to interject real quick and let the audience know that you can find Dr. Los on Instagram at Carlos Rivas MD. And then also go to his website, carlosrivasmd.com, to schedule a consultation. Now, I remember when you moved back to the Bay Area and started working at Highland and just hearing certain stories. Now, being a teenager in the 90s, there was a TV show, Scrubs, that everybody seemed to love at the time. And I remember hearing from over the years from medical doctors that that was a pretty accurate TV show when it comes to how hospital life is, residency, and becoming a doctor, and how hospitals are run, ran and everything. So I'm assuming when you started working at Highland, there was probably a lot of similarities with that show with what you experienced out there. If if you can jump into that, that would be fantastic. Well, yeah, I actually didn't watch that show a lot. I saw a few episodes and I thought it was hilarious. And I always loved that the actor, what's his name? The guy that did Garden State. Um, because I love that movie. Exactly. Yeah, I love that movie, Garden State. And I probably love Garden State because the soundtrack was so good, dude. Um, That's right. And because I definitely had a crush on Natalie Portman at the time. Uh, yeah, so I watched a few episodes of Zach Graff, I'm mean, excuse me, of, um, of Scrubs, but I wasn't super into Scrubs. it. Maybe I just didn't have time as a freaking resident. 
Um, but if you're right. looking on Netflix or other streaming channels for relevant material, they actually did a documentary about my hospital. It was focused on the emergency room. The movie was called, the documentary was called The Waiting Room. Um, and so you see some residents and other physicians um, highlighted in that movie. I wasn't in it. I, it, it was recorded either during my first, no, it was right before I started. The year before I started was when they recorded this documentary. So if anybody wants to see more about the internals of Highland Hospital, they can go find that movie and see what it was like. Another one that um, puts a little bit of a highlight on that hospital is this movie, Fruitvale Station. You remember that? Oh, yeah. 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 So I won't go into all of what that movie is about, but um, the main character, when he's going through his medical stuff at the end, um, is taken to Highland Hospital, and you actually see the inside of the hospital. And his case, um, which is a trauma case, a shooting, um, was what Highland Hospital was known for. We were like the trauma center because, unfortunately, open California, especially like late 90s, early 2000s, was like a war zone. Um, you know, gang violence and other things of that nature. Um, and so we were really well known and actually respected at a very well at an academic level, despite being a Podunk County hospital with no resources. Um, very high caliber academic uh, institutions like UCSF and Stanford would send their residents to our hospital to learn trauma, emergency medicine, trauma surgery, um, and trauma internal medicine, which is basically ICU care of patients with, um, uh, with trauma uh, in the ICU. So, yeah, there's a lot of uh, material there. As far as the scrubs being relevant, I'm not sure, but I think what you're saying there is that, um, that there's this kind of coping that needs to happen for physicians to be able to um, deal with the real life drama and emotion of what's happening there, right? Because you're there with the six of the six. Not everybody makes it. So you're there with people who are dying, family members um, of the dying or of the seriously sick. Um, you just see the whole spectrum of everything that a human can experience, both um, negative, like I was just saying, but also positive people who you know, basically experience cures or are saved from near-death experiences and then come out, um, you know, nearly miraculously better. Um, and so, and that takes a toll on the physician, especially because we have to stay so professional during those interactions. Imagine that you have to be the one um, telling the spouse of somebody who just died, I'm sorry, ma'am, your husband just passed. And you have to stay professional, but also compassionate and hide, you know, whatever um, emotional thing that you might be going through. Like, oh, was there anything else we could have done? Um, you know, like you get to know the patient or you care about them, even if you don't get to interact with them as far as like having a conversation with them because they're so sick. You know their name, you know their birthday, you, you lay your hands on them, you touch them, you take care of them. They become someone who is important to you if you keep a heart at all in the profession. Um, and so when they pass, you're going through your own thing, right? Of grieving and whatever else. So I think you have to have some medicine that people you have to have some way to cope with that, where you maintain your, um, 
your heart, like your ability to care, but at the same time, don't get overwhelmed with that. And so comedy, especially like a dark humor, really helps um, as an outlet to say, okay, we don't have to just like sit in the corner and cry about this. Like we can find ways to process our emotion that's positive in a way, humor, but that also doesn't forget the dark reality of what you're dealing with. So I think there's a lot of dark humor in that show that reflected that reality. And also just a lot, a, a fair amount of um, drama, like romantic drama and stuff. And that happens. Your doctors are real people. They have girlfriends. They go on dates. Um, you know, they have disappointments, um, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So I think that's what you're connecting with. Yeah. I, I just remember you telling me trauma stories of people getting carted in or carried into the hospital with multiple gunshot wounds, stabbing wounds, things like that, you know, and you're essentially when somebody comes in with that, your, for your priority is, okay, how do I stop the bleeding? How do I keep this person alive? You don't care about how it happened, the background story, any of that. And so that that's crazy enough, but then I don't think a lot of people think through, well, yeah, what's the, what's, what do these doctors do after that? Because you just, they, these people are experiencing trauma, but you also experience trauma witnessing a lot of these things. And how have you dealt with that over the years through and and through your residency, you were still in your young twenties or mid twenties at that point. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you, how did you work through those things? Yeah. So it's those things. And I just want to add um, another layer for any of my colleagues that are listening to it because they, they will all resonate with what I'm about to say. So it's all of that that you just mentioned, like all of this trauma, all of this drama, all of this intensity that's happening in front of you, you know, bleeding, death, broken bones, all that. Um, also, the, the emotions that the family members are bringing in. Um, but on top of that, you're being dehumanized in your own way. You don't get sleep. You're working 80 plus hours a week. That's, that's just fact. Every resident works 80 hours a week on the books. And everybody knows that we work beyond what we write in the books because you're expected to. Um, so everybody's working 80 plus hours a week, often overnight shifts um, or night shifts or swing shifts. Like, And it's intense and there's no excuses for things not going the way that they need to go. Um, you know, and we can get into the whole trauma of everything that happens in um, the academic environment for residents between their professors, they're called the attending physicians, and the program um, um, administrators, like the program director and, and those people. It's intense and sometimes abusive, sometimes borderline abusive, sometimes like abusive, abusive, but you need those people's um, uh, good impressions of you because they're the ones who are going to help you get into the well most of the time subspecialty so again you're doing another round of applications where um, letters of recommendation and grades matter um, so even though you're being abused you have to keep them happy and submit yourself to this abuse so the doctor that the doctors crazy. get dehumanized a lot in that process yeah. and you can go on amazon and find lots of books of doctors describing the horror of residency. And actually one area that I got into for a little while was um, so many resident, like much higher percentage than the general population and even higher percentage than the physician population, which is already higher than the general population, residents committing suicide 
because of the medical and psychological disorder that's induced by this ridiculous schedule and the ridiculous amount of trauma and intensity that they're dealing with for the first time in their lives. Like this is your first time really out there on the field dealing with this level of um, human challenges. Um, so how did I deal with it? Like not well, just like go drink more caffeine. Um, you know, listen to the music that you like when you're feeling overwhelmed, just to like process some emotion. Um, you know, apologize a lot to your friends and your family and your girlfriend or whoever for how you're never there and you act like you don't care and you're a jerk when you're around because you're irritable for lack of sleep and too much caffeine and shitty food. Like literally the food that they bring you almost every day is Domino's pizza. Seriously, like the program will buy you Domino's pizza. The nurses will buy you Domino's pizza. Like it's Domino's on, like every other day or more. Um, so, so you and I are big fans of David Goggins mm -hmm. and he does, he does a lot of his work through ultra marathons and, and just breaking down his body. Would you say that was kind of a similar experience, not knowing Goggins at the time where it, it wasn't even like survival mode, but it wasn't far from it. You were just trekking every day just to get through that day, get whatever sleep you can and just keep pushing yeah. forward to get through there's, it. There's two aspects of it. One is the survival mode. Like you just have to survive. You got to pass. You got to get to, you're in huge amounts of debt. So you have to get to your end point where you're actually working. So you can start paying off the crazy medical student debt that you have. Um, but also if you've gotten that far, you're already the type of person who pushes through and aspires. You have to be the term that we would use in medical school is that you're a gunner. So like you're gunning for the spot, you're going to keep pushing and to your own detriment, right? Like your health is being sacrificed. Your mental health is being sacrificed or at least like challenged very seriously. Um, your social life is definitely being impaired. Your sleep is non-existent. Um, you know, any outside pursuits that you might've had artistic or um, other hobbies, sacrifice, et cetera. Right. Um, but you're going to gun for what you, set yourself for that's something that pretty much every um resident has because you had to to even put yourself in that position um so which is kind of goes along with the goggins thing like he if we were to use medical terms for goggins like he's the gunner of gunners man like he just doesn't stop it doesn't matter he pursues his goal um and sacrifices his body for yeah. it i honestly believe having if you want to do anything great in life you can't have a completely balanced life where just every aspect of your life is perfectly balanced in line because you have to put in extra time you have to put in extra effort in the a lot of people don't understand what you went through and what medical doctors and other people in the medical profession have gone through but if you want to do anything great in life you have to get a, give it a ton of focus, a ton of effort. And yes, it's important to maintain certain things. I always talk about health and fitness is vital. Relationships are vital. Emotions and meaning are vital. But you can't do... If you want to do something like really great and different and revolutionary, you have to commit 
so much of yourself to it. And I know you do that today with your medical practice. And we'll get into that here shortly. But I really appreciate you going into that because I don't think people people know it's hard to become a doctor. But that sounds like Goggins talks about his SEAL training. It sounds like you were going through your bud's boot camp for I don't even know how long residency is at least a year or two or something uh, like that. Like three, at least three years. If you're getting a, three a board certification, it's at least three years. Yeah. If all you're doing is getting the bare minimum for your medical license, it's at least one year internship. Um, but pretty much nobody does that. Pretty much everybody gets board certification in a specialty, which requires at least three years. The shortest programs are family medicine or internal medicine or others like that that are three years or more especially if you're getting subspecialty. Gotcha. Um, I want to challenge you actually on what you're saying. What you're saying is true. Like if you're going to aspire, you're going to do something great. Of course, you have to have a phase where you're gunning, where you're pushing. But at the same time, as a physician or in general, as a professional, we have to have integrity, right? Um, right. Um, we both um, come from very moral backgrounds. Like we care about these principles of um, truth and integrity. Um, and we can go on and on about how we both developed those principles um, differently. Uh, we're both Christian and that's an important aspect of what, what resonates and what pushes us forward in our professions. Um, but looking at myself through that lens of like, no, I need to be truthful. And part of truthfulness is integrity, which means living out what you preach. Um, Right. There's other aspects to integrity, but that's part of it. Um, or in other words, not being a hypocrite. Um, Christianity has really helped me understand that idea of hypocrisy because Jesus was constantly calling out the the hypocrites in his society, and, you know, mostly the Pharisees at that time. Um, and so looking at myself through the lens of integrity, or in other words, of trying not to commit the sin of hypocrisy all the time, it's like, no. Uh, a physician has to achieve balance in their health so that they can be a role model of health and balance for their patients, for their clients' health. Because nobody really can all the way trust a physician that doesn't take proper care of their own health. And I say that in a, a very broad way when I say the word health, because um, you might see some contradictions um, if you're looking at health on a superficial level. But when I say health, I mean wellness in a very general way you know like wellness as a human being which has a lot of aspects to it so sometimes you might sacrifice your immediate biochemistry in order to enhance your mental health or your social health or other aspects of of your wellness right um so that's something that i realized during medical training where i was like this is inhuman literally i'm reading stories about residents killing themselves on a daily basis this isn't right we need to find a better way. Um, and so that was one of the reasons why I started looking outside the box. Of, you know, I usually use the term conventional medicine or more recently, sometimes I'll say insurance-based medicine. I started looking outside of those fields and one of the major stimuluses for that was the disorder and ill health of physicians, especially physicians in training. I was like, this is hypocrisy. We can't do this because we're not teaching health to our clients by living this way. Um, and so I started looking into more natural approaches, integrative approaches, holistic approaches, whatever term you want to use. The one that I use 
mostly is integrative because that's the truth that we're integrating um, understanding understandings about health and medicine from any and every uh, school of medicine that's out there, whether it's traditional um, or in you know like very ancient or more modern or more conventional. We, in, we integrate all of those. Um, and so in my pursuit for understanding health um, in integrating everything that we understand about health and medicine, I eventually found my mentor, I'll mention him. Now his name's Dr. Anthony G. Beck. He's the one who helped me put together my practice. He's the one who helped me um, you know, grow as a physician, especially an integrative physician, but as a physician in general. Um, I could I could go on and on about stories about Dr. Beck, um, but also as a as a businessman, to, you know, get out of just like being a doctor as an employee, but to be able to put up my own banner, hang my own shingle, and say, "Hey, I'm Dr. Rebus. Come to me. I'll take care of you." Instead of, "Hey, come to Kaiser Permanente, and Dr. Rebus is one of a thousand doctors that you can click and choose," um, you know, but really be my own man as a businessman. And be able to stand on my own feet and be able to pay my own bills uh, through my own business. That and so much more. He, he's a great father figure to me and, you know, an essential mentor and really um, family to me. And his family has become my family. I could go on and on. But I, one of the main reasons I was drawn to him as a mentor and as an educator for physicians was that not only did he preach balance, which was missing from the conventional system, but he lived it and you could tell. You could tell even just by his social media content that he was living what he preached and what he preached was balance. Um, balance in all things, in your biochemistry, in your lifestyle, in your mindset, in your approach to your work, to your health, to your family life, etc. And he lived it. He had that integrity and, and one of, if not the main um, fundamental principles of health was balance. Um, and so he um, developed a framework of understanding health and medicine called Balance Protocol. Um, and I was lucky enough to be enrolled in his um, institute, Balance Protocol Institute, where he educates physicians in integrative functional medicine. We can go into what that means. Um, but not just integrative functional medicine, but the framework that finally puts together everything from every traditional or modern medical field and puts it together systematic, because we're engineers, right, Matt? Um, we need to have systems that make sense, that are consistent, that are science-based, but that work in the real world, that give real results, right? Um, consistent results right. and specific results. Like, no, this is going to work for this case, and I can all but guarantee it. And, and we're going to sit here and watch and make sure that it works, right? Like that's engineering. Like the bridge works. The, the building doesn't fall. Like it, it has to work in reality. Um, so I always brought that to medicine that we can't just sit and feel good that we're reading papers and reading textbooks and prescribing things. Like, no, it needs to work for my client who's sitting in front of me. But it needs to work consistently and it needs to be in a framework that makes sense. And that doesn't have closed doors. Like, why are we only going to consider pharmaceuticals or surgery when there's so many other potential interventions, right? Whether you're talking about herbal medicine, supplements, um, mental health techniques, 
um, exercises, lifestyle changes, environment changes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, ad nauseum. There's so much that impacts your health that can be intervened. Why, why not use all of it? And then it turns out, oh, all those other things that a conventional doctor doesn't even mention, that's where health starts. Your nutrition, your lifestyle, your environment, your mindset which those four are part of the framework that Dr. Beck taught me, um, are the foundations, the pillars of your health. And the pillars of your health are what prevent illness or help resolve illness if you get those foundations back into balance. So that's where the great majority of the work in medicine needs to be, is on the foundations of health that dictate how your biology is operating. And when you fix those, your body naturally returns to health and wellness because your body has an immune system and other healing mechanisms to bring it back into health on its own. You don't need to be stuck on uh, synthetic or artificial um, or uh, kind of heroic means to maintain your health. Your body can do that in and of itself if you provide the proper conditions. And so from a medical perspective, that's what I learned from Dr. Beck is how to help people reestablish the foundations of their health so that their own body um, recovers from chronic illness and maintains health and vibrancy and wellness. And then just to speak a little bit about my mission as a physician now, as I understand it, is to help people overcome their chronic health issues, to remove those hurdles and barriers so that they can feel well, and not only well, but vibrant, optimal, um, thriving, you know, aspirational. And one of the things that I do with my patients is help remind them of their dreams, their aspirations, because a lot of people forgot about them or left them to the wayside because they had been so held back by illness or other issues that they didn't believe in their dreams anymore. And so I remind them because I know they need to be aware and focused on those things if they're going to get through the hard work that it requires to balance your health again, because it's hard work. Guys, even though you, even though it costs money, it also is hard work um, to achieve your health again. Uh, because I'm going to force you to change your diet, your lifestyle, your environment. You know, your relationships are going to be affected. It's hard. So how are you going to get through that hard work if you're focused on your dreams and that you believe that you can achieve them? And so that's my mission: is to help reduce the barriers to wellness, so that individuals can reclaim their vibrancy and aspire to achieve whatever dream they were put on this earth to achieve their vocation, um, their, their divinely assigned mission. That's what I'm here for. Help, help yeah. people chase so, that again. So if I hear you correctly, it sounds like most people's experience with what I call Western modern medicine mm -hmm getting prescription drugs, things like that. That's just one tool. Let, you know, let's say you're a carpenter and you have a hammer. That approach in, and I know I'm overgeneralizing, but that's just one part of medicine. And what you guys offer is a plethora of different ways of treating patients. So yeah, sometimes it might be prescriptions. Sometimes it might be supplements, but also you're talking about wellness. So mindset uh, diet and exercise, uh, your psychological health, um, 
meditation practices. I'm, I'm throwing out a lot of different tools here, but it sounds like the vast majority of people have been trained to think that prescriptions are the only way, Mm -hmm. like how you, my mom passed away from cancer. Mm -hmm. I experienced the same thing that you Mm -hmm. did and you were there with Mm me when that had happened. Mm -hmm. And most people think I need chemo. I need radiation, which is killing your good cells in addition to the bad cells. So am, am I correct in saying that Western medicine has only a part of the puzzle and that what you guys are doing is bringing more puzzle pieces in together to make a whole picture of a person. Yeah, what you're saying is true. And I'm going to take it a level deeper. So yes, absolutely. Con- conventional medicine, Western medicine, um, insurance-based medicine, whatever you want to call it. Um, they definitely have a toolbox, and that toolbox has utility. Even things like what you mentioned, chemotherapy, radiation, even though they have toxicities, there are certain situations where you might need to leverage those potentially toxic but also potentially beneficial tools. Um, and, yes, there's many tools that are available, whether, like you said, diet, lifestyle, other supplements, other remedies, et cetera, um, that are available and useful. Um, and so we broaden the toolbox, like you're saying, that's true. But I would say even more important is we change the paradigm. We change the perspective on health. And that's what allows us to open our minds to everything that's important or useful to help me somebody reachieve health. That sounds kind of vague, so I'm going to say it in a different way. Illness <clears throat> is a result of health imbalances. Um, one classic way to see and understand that that almost everybody understands is lab results, right? Like we take your blood, we take your urine, we take your hair, we take your stool, et cetera. Um, and we can see, okay, you're out of the range of normal, right? Like low, high, borderline, whatever. Um, there's an imbalance here compared to what is normal and expected. Um, so we in integrative functional medicine imbalance protocol, we leverage a lot of labs to see those imbalances. But whether it's biochemical imbalances or other quantifiable imbalances, is that imbalance, especially if it's maintained in a chronic way, and then you have multiple imbalances, multiple stressors, multiple toxins, or other um, uh, harmful mm, pressures on the body or on the body systems, result in manifest in illness, disease, symptoms, etc. But the problem is not the disease, it's the health imbalance. Or in other words, if your health was back in balance, those illnesses would self-resolve. And so what we need to do is uh, survey the territory, study the map, um, quantify the current status. Uh, my mentor has a phrase, is Q squared, M squared. Qualify, quantify, measure, and monitor. We need to use all the available science, and there's so much that we can quantify that's useful, and, and quantify what's relevant and, and powerful, you know, what has a high yield of benefit and high likelihood of being relevant to the case survey that and then do what is necessary to bring those things back into balance many of those things are really low-hanging fruit nutrition 
lifestyle, environment, and also mindset. Because you have to have the mindset to remedy all those other areas of your life. Um, and and yeah, we often so block if, ourselves. If, if I got to walk me through this. So if I got a consultation with you and I was interested in working with you, what does that look like? So a patient goes on your website, uh, fills out some information, you get an inquiry. Uh, can you take me through the steps through that? And then also what it looks like when someone like myself would sign up with you? What does the process look like? Yeah, thanks, Frank. Thanks Generally. for asking that question because usually I just go on and on about the philosophy and I appreciate you bringing us back to the real world. So usually somebody will encounter something um, like this podcast episode or content produced by my mentor, Dr. Beck, um, or one of my other colleagues. And basically, they'll find their way into our network of integrative functional medicine online. Um, and then they'll end up on my website, you know. And then, you know, maybe they read their my About Me page and, and they like what I'm saying there. Um, or whatever. They find my website and then right near the top, it's pretty self-explanatory. It says, schedule an appointment. They click there. You see a menu of different appointment types. Um, the most common that people would start off with, with me, one would be called the discovery call. It's just a brief, no obligation, um, kind of meet and greet so we can have a meeting of minds and see if we'd be a good fit to work together. And um, Or somebody has an acute need, and so they might schedule what's called a one-time consult. And so they, they just want to have a brief meeting with me, relatively brief, it's half hour, um, to address a specific issue that's going on. Um, or what's probably even more common is either a word of mouth referral, you know, somebody who knows somebody who had good results with me and who um, appreciates uh, my style of medicine will refer a, a loved one or an acquaintance to my practice. Um, or that they'll find me. Another thing that happens a lot is they'll find me on social media and just start, you know, DMing me. They'll just start messaging me. Um, and then we'll have a little bit of a back and forth and say, okay, yeah, it sounds like what you need would probably be best addressed by a long-term health program. So we'll, we'll start with a discovery call. Um, and if we're a good fit, we'll proceed on to other more intensive consultations or, oh, it sounds like you have a very acute need. There's one specific thing that we should address right now. Why don't you schedule a one-time consult and we'll go from there. So that's usually how it starts. And then right. we end up on a, like a telemedicine visit. So like what we're doing now, um, you know, this is basically how I come to work and how you would expect to see me on our telemedicine visit. We'll use different platforms to get that telemedicine visit handled and um, you know people might be surprised at right now all of our uh, work is telemedicine we're building out this clinic I'm in our physical clinic um, but we're not seeing in-person clientele here yet that'll be coming soon um, so everything is telemedicine and we can do so much um, I still missed laying hands on patients, doing the physical exam, and so I'm looking forward to getting back into that once we open the doors to the public here. Um, but in the meantime, um, you know, the vast, vast, vast majority of health issues can be uh, addressed through telemedicine. So we have these appointments. We order labs. It doesn't matter where in the country or sometimes or even where in the world you are. We order the labs that are needed. We find a way. We get you the treatments that are needed. And if you do need hands-on care, we find our colleagues that are the best of the best in your area, whether it's uh, a hands-on provider like a chiropractor or a physical therapist or a massage therapist, 
um, or other some specialty care. Sometimes I need to send someone to my surgeon colleagues or my ear, nose, and throat colleague or some other conventional uh, medicine colleague. I help the individual uh, basically search what is available to them in their area, and we make sure that they're working with the best individual possible and that they know how to advocate for themselves in the conventional system, uh, or I become their advocate in that system. You know, someone might go to their, um, let's say, cardiologist and say, oh, by the way, Mr. or Dr. Cardiologist, I'm working with um, an integrative physician. His name's Dr. Rivas. He wants to make sure you're aware of some things about my case. Would you please have a doctor-to-doctor consultation so that you guys are on the same page so I provide those kinds of services so that there's as much like seamless and integrated care regardless of what kind of provider they might need to interact with. I love working with my uh, integrative colleagues like chiropractors and um, acupuncturists and whatnot that my clientele might need and uh, my conventional colleagues. So if, if I were to say one thing just to give myself a little plug, why work with Dr. Rebus as opposed to other doctors you might find online besides just him being so cool and handsome is that I'm able to truly integrate across the areas of medicine that everybody is going to encounter. Like as much as you might hate MDs, you're going to encounter them. You're going to be at some point you're going to be in the emergency room. You're going to be in the hospital um, or you're going to be at your primary care doctor's office or the urgent care office. And you want a doctor that can interface with that at a very high level. Like, really know the specifics. Like, what are the side effects of that drug? Do I really need that CT scan? Um, my surgeon said this. Um, is that right? So you want a doctor that can consult at that level, but that also can bring you all the benefits and understandings of uh, truly integrative or what some people might call a holistic, I don't like that term, but it's what's common, approach um, and integrate all of that into your care. Like, yes, these are the supplements that you need. These are the herbs that you need. These are the lifestyle changes that you need and the exercises that you need. And that we can give you the understanding for why you need those things at a scientific level that's quantified that you could take that data back to your MD and say, look, this is why I'm taking this supplement. This is why I'm making this lifestyle change. These are the quantifiable, bio-quantified results that I'm achieving as a result of these integrative holistic approaches integrated with conventional approaches because maybe I'm still on high blood pressure medicine. Maybe I'm still working on getting off of my Prozac or whatever other medication or other conventional thing is happening. All that's integrated and has a goal of achieving the highest level of wellness. You know, optimal health is a term that floats around a lot in the info space. We're achieving that. That's our goal. But we're not going to just throw the baby out with the bathwater, dump all your medicines, dump all your conventional doctors. No, don't do that um, because there can be serious consequences if you handle that improperly. Also, we're going to get there step by step. There's a system. It's called balance protocol. There's a doctor that knows how to wield it. His name's Dr. Rebus. He was trained by the best of the best. That's why you work with me as opposed to, you know, some other functional medicine doctor or some other conventional doctor. Yeah, the image that I get in my head is not only are you a coach because you're coaching your clients, you're telling them, do this, do that, take these tests, see this person or that person, but you're also like a mentor because you're educating them on their own bodies and their own systems and how everything works. But you're also like 
a friend holding their hand. So there's like these different parts that images that come up in my mind when I hear about all the different things you do. And that is so foreign to me personally in my experience with going to the going to my doctor, going to the hospital. I feel when I'm doing that, I'm more like a number and I'm just this, there's this wall between me and whoever's taking care of me. And I feel like from the stories you told earlier and your experiences, what you're living today and the practice that you are providing and the services you're providing for your clients is who you are. It's your mission. It's your identity. You and I the other day talked about this. You cannot turn off being Dr. Los, whether it's in your personal life or your professional life. That is the essence of who you are. And I have seen you work. I've seen you in action with your patients. And it's absolutely incredible the uh, the gifts that you're giving to them and how much you are helping these people. That is so different than what I think the vast majority of people here in the U.S. have experienced when it comes to the medical industry. Yeah. Thanks for saying all that, Matt. Like you are so you're the best podcast host. I'm not just saying that because like <laughs> you're my best friend since freshman year of high school. Um, and because I'm on your podcast, like you, you very intuitively, but also in a common sense way, get to the heart of matters that I wouldn't have even thought of, but are so relevant to the conversation and the message we're trying to get across to your audience. Um, first of all, I'm at the Dr. Lowe's, um, superhero name. Um, part of that is, is you and our friends from high school. Los, you guys gave me that nickname. I never had it before hanging out with you guys. Um, I forget who was the first one to say it. Maybe Mickey. He often, it's probably he Mickey. He often has the cool nicknames. Um, but everybody yeah. like picked it up, I think, as soon as Mickey said it. And you guys made me feel so cool. Yeah, I'm Los. Um, and it's actually a nickname <laughs> that um, my colleagues still use for me. Like Dr. Beck will call me Los sometimes. And I love it. It just makes me feel so cool. Um, but Dr. Los, Los is part of my first name, Carlos. So it's not, um, it's not, what's it called when a oh, secret identity? It's not a secret identity. Um, it's just like a cool spin on my identity, Dr. Carlos Rivas. So why didn't, why didn't I try a secret identity? It's like you said, um, being a caretaker, being a physician, um, is so core to my identity that sometimes I think it's more core to me than my own name, than Carlos or, or Rivas. Like it's so important to me. It's something like I was telling you in that conversation we were having that you're referring to something I can never turn off. I can turn off different aspects of my personality. I can be fun. I can be quiet. Um, I can be serious. I can be lighthearted. Uh, but I can never turn off that, like, I care and I need to apply a technical approach to the problem that you, personal individual, is having, especially if it's health-related. And we think about health so broadly that almost everything is health-related. So I'm always doctoring everybody, and I'm sorry for that, guys, but it's because I care and because that identity is so integral to me. Um, and we were talking about Dr. Strange and how he the same thing. He doesn't change his identity just because he's also a superhero in the mystical arts going across the multiverse. He's Dr. Strange everywhere. Um, and I feel that way. Um, I'm Dr. Rebus everywhere. Um, 
And then, That's right. That's yeah, right. going going back to the other things. Sorry, you were saying. I'm blanking. Actually, there were some other things that um, you jogged my memory about, but I forget them now. So we can just edit that out. Oh no, it's all good, man. <laughs> it is all good. I, yeah, I wish this conversation could go on forever. Uh, but I really appreciate you coming on, man. Uh, for those of you who are interested in learning more about Dr. Los, you can find him on Instagram at Carlos Rivas MD. Also, go to his website, Carlos Rivas MD com to schedule a consultation. We walked through it a little bit er- earlier. I actually did a consultation the other day. <laughs> it went very seamlessly. And yeah, I really appreciate you coming on. And just to let the audience know, this is not the one and only time that Dr. Losa is going to come on to this show. I don't think he knows this yet, but I'm planning on getting him back on at some point because I want to get more into your story. Mm-hmm. I want to get more into what you do. And I want to educate the audience more on just the possibilities of healthcare and how people can empower themselves and take control of their health. Because ultimately, I talk about taking control of your life, but it's really taking control of your health and everything stems off of that. So Dr. Los, thank you for coming on. Thank you for being here. I hope you have a, a wonderful day. And to all of those listening, Thank you for tuning in. You are going to hear more from Dr. Los at some point here in the not too distant future and all the other amazing people that come onto this show. So I'm going to sign out here in a second. Is there one more thing you'd like to say, Dr. Los? I want to say thank you for creating this podcast, for creating yourself into being this amazing man that's bringing all of this uh, material and energy out into the world. It's going to help a lot of people. So thank you for the work that you're doing and thank you for letting me be a part of it. Um, Of course, absolutely. I'll be back on the show anytime you allow it because I love what you're doing here. um, And I'm happy to help your audience um, first grow and then because we need to get the message out. And then second, to understand uh, what you're trying to do here about becoming a superhero by design, being um, the best that you can be and that the best you can be is even better than you might have thought. Uh, especially in 2023, there's so much that is available and that you're capable of if you leverage all the science and the best techniques. And there's a lot out there. And we're doing that from a health and medicine perspective um, through my practice. And I also, um, if people want to understand a little bit more about the framework and the understanding of health and medicine that uh, I'm coming from, they should look up my mentor, Dr. Anthony Chibak, and his protocol, balance protocol. You, if you search those terms on any social media um, or internet space, you'll find his material, um, and that'll help you understand what we're talking about, about a change in paradigm of understanding health and medicine. And then if you're looking for a practitioner to help apply that change of paradigm to your case, hit me up, carlosrebusmd.com, at carlosrebusmd on most socials. I think except TikTok, I'm DR, Dr. Carlos Rebus, um, and happy to help anybody. And if scheduling a consultation, on my website is too intimidating. There's a contact form. You can uh, send the contact form. It'll send me an email. Um, I think my email is also out there. You can just email me directly or DM me through whatever social media um, platform you find me on. I'm happy to have a chat with you uh, over text and and convert that to something um, more professional if, if that's appropriate for the two of us. Heck yeah, man. No, I love it. I love it. Thank you for sharing all that. Thank you for sharing your story. I really appreciate all of that. So 
with that said, I'm going to get out of here. Carlos, Dr. Los, have a fantastic day. Thank you too, man. And the rest of you listening, I appreciate you, man. The rest of you listening, have a wonderful day. Thank you once again for uh, listening to the podcast. Subscribe, rate it five stars. It helps out tremendously. You guys have done a fantastic job so far. And with your support, we're going to get more people like Dr. Losan. And we are just going to kill this thing and change people's lives. So with that said, peace out. Peace.